This is the SciDev.net podcast for science news and views on global development. In this month's programme, we look at the ancient art of mapping. We discover how it's evolved through technology and how it makes a difference in today's most pressing crises. We'll learn how citizen scientists are mapping remote territories in vulnerable areas to predict humanitarian disasters. OpenStreetMaps is available to anyone, so if you wanted to map at home, you could just sit down on on your computer and start editing it. It's like a Wikipedia of maps, basically. And we'll learn how satellites are helping them. So say if we have some elevation data which comes from satellite imagery, we can use it to do slope analysis to help decide the locations uh, for those that have been displaced from the earthquake. We'll travel to Congo, where NGOs and local people are joining efforts to fight poaching. And we'll learn how mapping Asia's water resources can improve the lives of more than one billion people. Our belief was that creating a a common set of publicly available information was really critical in building a common evidence pool for these different actors to respond to and, and act on. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. The OpenStreetMap project was launched in 2004 by the British entrepreneur Steve Coast with the aim to create a Wikipedia of maps, a space for everyone to point at places relevant for local people and contribute to a crowdsourced, more democratic picture of the world. As it turned out, open maps are also a powerful tool to help aid workers respond to crises quickly because they can be updated in real time by volunteers on the ground. Today, a new project aims at taking this one step further and map crises ahead of real time. So the Missing Maps is essentially a collaboration between some non-governmental organizations, Doctors Without Borders, MSF, and and the British Red Cross and the American Red Cross, with the Humanitarian Open Street Map team. So essentially what we're trying to do is actually fill the gaps in the map where the mapping that does exist is insufficient and inappropriate for the people who are living in the most vulnerable places in the world. So in places like South Sudan and Central African Republic and Chad and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there aren't really maps which reflect where the people live in ways that the people actually themselves describe. So let me illustrate with an example here. When someone walks into a clinic in the Congo and they have some you know, illness, we will, as a matter of course, ask them where they're from. And here we make use of that data to, to find out where epidemics might be happening and to, and to manage public health. But in most of the really vulnerable and poor areas of the world, that's not possible. Why? Because when somebody comes in and gives a location, like, I come from Boberi. Well, in the Central African Republic, there's a place where there's a dialect where Bo means the place of and Berry means the people. Guess how many villages are called Boberi? So... In this, in, in, in this sense, where we're actually asking someone to give us the location that they're coming from when they come in with an illness, we're actually recording that in a column which we should probably label random syllables because we don't know what it means. And that's what I mean by a map which might exist as a stub. There might be some kind of map information, but it won't really reflect the human geography. Well, that was Ivan Gayton, a technology advisor at Médecins Sans Frontières, UK, speaking with multimedia producer Lou Del Bello, who joins me in the studio. Hello, Lou. Hi, John. So, Lou, tell us more about Missing Maps and how volunteers are filling the gaps that Ivan mentioned. Well, I decided to attend a Missing Maps launch event. 
that was held earlier this month in London because I wanted to know what's left to discover after the open mapping revolution. Open mappers have been capturing the world from a local perspective for a few years now, and the system seems to be the perfect response tool in case of natural disaster or disease outbreaks. But what missing maps does is to identify areas that are likely to be hit by crisis in the future. In other words, while open mapping is reactive, the new approach is proactive. It's interesting, isn't it? So how does that really work in practice? I put the question to Ivan Gayton, who explained the collaboration between mappers in London and local communities in remote areas of the developing world. So the way in which the, the missing maps collaboration is intended to work is we do from abroad all of the work that's, that's possible to be done from a distance. So all of the tracing from satellite photos, all of the sort of scut work, we do. And the precious, precious local volunteers with that local, local knowledge, we only get them to do the stuff that's absolutely necessary to be done from the local area. So in these places where the local people have, we've actually given them the attention and the chance to actually tell us where they think they live or, or how they call their place, I actually find that they, they become very attached to the map. It's, it's something that then they feel they have some ownership over. Can you describe uh, what we're going to see tonight at the London School of Aging Tropical Medicine? You bet. Yeah, we're actually working on Central African Republic and in South Sudan where we have medical teams that are trying to work on various you know, health programs and particularly outbreaks, where we've asked the people here to actually prepare the base map. They're actually doing all of the tracing from this satellite imagery so that when we arrive in the field, we can see clearly a map. All we need to do then is add the actual place names. And it's much easier to add a place name when you've got the map laid out in front of you. And clearly, at that point, I was curious to see how all these ideas are put into practice. Luckily, the launch event also hosted a mapathon. It's a space for volunteers to get involved and map a specific area that is believed to be at risk. I discovered it's a very simple task and it's really for everyone, as long as you have a computer and an internet connection. You just have to create an account on the OpenStreetMap portal and uh, read the instructions. In my case, I decided to team up with some young volunteers who helped me out with my first mapping experience focused on South Sudan and Central African Republic. Today the project that we're working on is 736 because we're all beginners and this is supposed to be a slightly easier one. Okay. So this is the region that doesn't have a map right now. Okay. So, so it's, it's divided. It's a screen with like some dots or squares. Yeah. So it's divided. Point out guys, the past the girl in the limbo is now 41% done. So it's nearly halfway finished, which is great. Okay. Oh, awesome. Just so you can have some feedback on that. Okay, so the Lilimba is the area in Congo, mm -hmm. and this task is divided into grids. Okay. So the uh, this kind of grey grid mm -hmm. with a grey border means mm -hmm. that no one is working on it right now. Okay. So if I click on it, I can claim to work on this. The yellow squares that are filled in means that someone has said that it's done. This task is done. Okay, when it's yellow. Yes, and when it becomes green, that means it's validated. I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> someone validates it, you might want to ask. Validation means just that someone else who's a bit more experienced will come into the map and check your square and say, you know what, this is fine, boom, and it'll turn green. And once all the, all the squares are green, that's when the entire region is validated and um, 
people are clear to go. So all of the people who are in this room yeah. are working on the same area? Mm-hmm. So we've got two tasks today. One is in the Democratic Republic of Congo and one is in South Sudan. Mm-hmm. And um, these are two requested areas. So we never just map randomly. Okay. You can, we, because it's too big a task to... We're not going to map the whole world. Yeah. We, we want to focus our efforts. So basically those are the two areas. And then in those two areas, let's say there are 30 squares. And then in those 30 squares, everyone can pick one. And that's how it gets a collaborative effort. And then after a while, you can see the roads coming together okay. and things like that. Yeah. Mappers come, acquire the skill, and go home and then utilize it. I think. Um, and they can do it at home on their own? Anything. On their own, the, the open street maps is available to anyone. So if you wanted to map at home, you could just sit down on, a, on your computer and start editing it. It's like a Wikipedia of maps, basically. At the Mapathon, I also met some A-level students. Talking to them got me thinking how crowdsourced science can be not only helpful, but also an inspiration to people. Um, we're just A-level students, so okay. it's basically like an experience. So we can take the skills that we've learned today and teach our um, students at school. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how are you finding it? It's really interesting. Yeah. It's not something that I would usually do because like, I've never come across this sort of program. And knowing that it exists, that you can really help like, vulnerable areas mm. that don't exist on the map. Yeah. It might be giving you an idea of what you want to do after something. It is, yeah. Yeah, because I was already considering uh, doing something in geography, but I wasn't too sure. But seeing things like this um, kind of widens, like, it makes you realise how many different things you can do within geography, and, like, mapping can help so many people. Well, that was Lou Del Bello reporting from the Missing Maps launch event earlier this month at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in London. Now, working hands-on, digital maps are quite straightforward, but the technology behind them is advanced. Reporter Amna Modin is here to tell us more. Hi, Amna. Hi, John. So, Amna, can satellite imagery really make a real difference in humanitarian disaster responses? Satellite imagery has been used for a while now in disaster responses. For the last decade, the International Charter on Space and Major Disasters has provided free satellite data to humanitarian organisations involved in disaster relief. Now, this charter is an international collaboration of space agency, and the data they've provided to humanitarians has played a crucial role in a number of disasters, including earthquakes, floods and landslides. More recently, the Charter was activated in response to the Ebola crisis. This was the first time the Charter was activated for a disease outbreak. Aid agencies have been using this space technology to help produce maps that can be used to coordinate the humanitarian response to make sure the right resources are provided to those most in need. So what kind of questions can be answered by capturing images through satellites? I think the most important ingredient to an effective humanitarian response is information, and satellite imagery can help humanitarians answer crucial questions such as the extent of the environmental devastation, what areas have humanitarians yet to reach, where are the most vulnerable people, and what aid do they require. I wanted a play-by-play understanding of how humanitarian organisations use satellite imagery and what impact and limitations it can have. So I spoke to Anna Mason, a humanitarian GIS and information management specialist working with MapAction. MapAction is a charity that provides geospatial services in humanitarian emergencies. We've deployed to over 50 humanitarian crises since 2004, 
providing support to many national and international aid teams. Within 24 hours, a map action emergency team can be at the scene of a disaster, gathering data and issuing maps and displaying crucial information for relief workers. We are mostly volunteers who are geospatial, information management or ICT professionals trained to use our skills in emergencies. We used our skills to try to answer questions like um, which areas have yet to be reached, where are the relief resources, where are the people in greatest need. Are there any examples of satellite imagery making a difference in the humanitarian's responses to disaster outbreaks? There are many examples of important decisions being made using analysis based on satellite imagery. For example, it can be particularly useful for quick analysis of an area to determine the least hazard-prone sites for IDP camps. So say if we have some elevation data which comes from satellite imagery, we can use it to do slope analysis to help decide the locations uh, for those that have been displaced from the earthquake. Um, we might analyse the data to find areas that are large enough that, to fit many tents, that also have um, a shallow slope and are perhaps near collapsed um, buildings or towns, so near to where the um, displaced population will be. Are there any particular drawbacks with using satellite imagery? Well, map action doesn't solely depend on satellite imagery. This is because satellite imagery isn't able to provide information on people's needs. Only, only data collected on the ground can actually do that. And the usefulness of satellite imagery is heavily dependent on its time frame. If the data is provided quick enough, then it can have a real impact. This is why Map Action calls for the Charter to be activated as soon as a disaster hits. This is what Anna had to say. There are some limitations. For example, timing is a really important factor. The imagery is most valuable when it can add information that can't be observed on the ground just as quickly, for example, in ground surveys. Um, one example of that would be from the Manila floods in 2009, where there was a flash flood. Synthetic aperture radar was used to derive the outline of the flood, but um, by the time the imagery was taken, the flash flood had mostly gone, or the evidence of the water had, had mostly gone. So um, really, usefulness is often based on what sensors are available at the time. A few other things that make the imagery most valuable to us is if it covers the correct area of interest, um, if it is taken at a useful level of resolution. So imagery that detects impact over the widest relevant area is often really useful for us. But in other cases, um, very high resolution imagery can also be really useful for, for different types of analysis. Uh, other things that can be useful, um, if the imagery is well analysed so that uh, to avoid misleading impressions of impact, that's very helpful. And another really important thing is that the imagery or the analysis is in a format that um, users can use and interpret quite easily. Um, so the analysis and interpretation side is really important and um, knowing what the imagery or, or the data that's been shared doesn't tell us um, is also important too. Once you've gathered this data, how challenging is it to get the information to those who need it? Being in the field, we face the usual challenges with limited connectivity and bandwidth, which is one reason we really value the data derived from satellite products over the raw imagery itself. Um, we can then focus on visualisation and dissemination of information, so ensuring analysis is presented in a way that helps clarify choices about humanitarian programming decisions. 
So does this mean satellite imagery can be used more regularly and for a variety of disasters? The key thing is using satellite imagery to complement other data to provide a fuller picture of the situation so aid agency can respond accordingly. Well, that was reporter Amna Modine talking to Anna Mason from Map Action. Amna, thanks for coming in. Stay with us to discover how maps are helping fight poaching in Brazzaville in Congo and how they're helping keeping track of South Asia's endangered water resources later in the podcast. This is the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. In the deep forest of Brazzaville in the Congo, poaching is threatening the local environment as well as the rights of indigenous people. A team from University College London is helping local NGOs fight poachers through a mobile app that allows locals to draw maps of the area. Reporter Jeremy Evans has met the project coordinator in his London offices and sent this report. The issue of poaching in forest-heavy parts of Africa like the Congo is not a new one. But in recent years, the effects of the poaching industry, not just on endangered animals but on indigenous people as well, have taken a turn for the worse. UCL's Extreme Citizen Science Research Group are tackling the problem using mobile technologies. They're deploying smartphones to local people, along with software allowing them to record information on poaching and report it to conservation organisations. Co-director Jerome Lewis explains the solution grew from a previous project tackling the impacts of logging companies on local communities. In Congo we did some mapping work with local communities who were being affected by logging companies' activities, chopping down trees very important for their livelihoods. And we developed a mapping application that they could use to map the key resources they didn't want the loggers to damage. And it resolved a huge number of problems, um, essentially based around uh, the difficulty of communication between the loggers and the indigenous people living in the forest that they were working. But what was interesting was that some four or five years later, the hunter-gatherers who had been involved in uh, setting up this project with me uh, said, well, we're really impressed how the loggers have been respecting our resources now, and we'd like to address another problem which we really worried about. And this problem was uh, a problem which was caused by poaching, but it had two main aspects. One aspect was the activities of poachers messing up the forest, leaving traps all over the place so the children would uh, start walking in them and decimating local wildlife so people wouldn't find the food that they needed to eat. And then uh, the other side of the problem was the reaction of Western conservationists, which is to send out armed men to control poachers. And these eco-guards, uh, in the context of uh, the Congo forest, were using their uniforms, guns, and uh, uh, right to apply violence in very arbitrary ways, which were causing a lot of stress and suffering to local people. So there were, uh, in certain places, regular beatings, there had been killings, um, uh, some very serious human rights abuses of local people by these eco-guards. But the more the team analysed the issue, the more they realise the underlying problem. Major commercial poaching is not organised by local people, but by local elites. These elites use their power uh, to threaten anyone who seeks to undermine the networks that they enrich themselves with. And so eco-guards approaching groups associated with these local elites would be harassed and uh, threatened. 
not always, but often. And the result was that they would prefer not to bother these seriously damaging, massive commercial poaching enterprises, but rather they would go to local villages and persecute local people. To tackle the complex problems without the risk of locals being persecuted for giving information, the strategy is to deploy smartphones with software that can do multiple things. All users will have the ability to report logging issues, as in the previous project, but those who choose to can also capture information on poaching. By tapping on pictures of objects they recognise, most people can learn how to use the tools very quickly. This information can then be sent via SMS straight to conservation organisations, protecting the identities of the informants. We partnered up with the managers of the EcoGuards, who were concerned, of course, to improve the efficiency and efficacy of the EcoGuards um, and root out those who were causing lots of problems to local people. Uh, and also uh, with a logging company who were partly responsible for financing the EcoGuards. And so the idea was that local people would provide evidence of locations of active commercial poachers which would then allow the managers of the eco-guards to know whether the uh, eco-guards had been to visit those camps and try to control them uh, and disband them indeed, um, or whether they were simply turning a blind eye and going elsewhere and persecuting local people. So that was one aspect of it, to improve the activities of the eco-guards. And then the second activity, of course, was to locate stashes of ivory uh, vehicles transporting ivory and, uh, and bushmeat and collect number plates or the types of weapons that poachers in the forest were using because that sort of evidence is very important once you manage to actually uh, catch someone in the act um, of taking them to court and allowing a judge to, to find them guilty. And, uh, and there was a very uh, a good organisation operational in Congo called uh, PALF who uh, specialise in trying to uncover the networks rather than simply take out the individual hunters on the ground because they can get replaced very easily. Um, and, uh, and so in coordination with them and Wildlife Conservation Society who run the local national park, um, we started to develop a set of software icons that the hunter-gatherers would use to provide very detailed knowledge of the movement, the activities, the stashes, the circulation uh, of uh, commercial poachers and their uh, products. Journalist Vidi Doshi has reported regularly on ivory poaching in Africa. Conservation organisations do rely on local intelligence to curb poaching and this might be a good way to get it, but I think there are some really significant questions about how this is all going to work. There's an obvious question about mobile phone and internet penetration in these villages. From my experience, internet connections are slow, they're expensive, and they're a real luxury for the people who live and work in these environments. And you might say that internet will come even to the most remote places eventually, but this is a problem happening now. You know, in 10 years, there might not be a rainforest left to rescue. But Jerome and his team are hoping poor reception and lack of phones won't be an issue. They're planning on taking small numbers of smartphones with them. And rather than hoping for real-time reporting using 3G, for them, it's about the capabilities the phones have as smart recording devices. We introduce smartphones uh, just because they represent extraordinarily uh, efficient scientific tools. They have GPS locators which provide very accurate uh, geo-referencing or geotagging of things. 
uh, they have time measure, uh, they can take photographs, they can take sound recordings. You don't need many to have an impact. Um, if we wanted to have a system which monitored the whole of the Congo effectively, uh, we probably would need several hundred phones. There are only, I think, 40 or 50 concessions uh, in the whole country. Uh, and so if you had two phones in each concession that had some process by which they circulated through communities, um, you would actually be able to cover very efficiently and have real-time coverage of issues as they emerged in a very effective way. That was Jeremy Evans reporting on the activities of the Extreme Citizen Science Group at University College London. Stay with us to learn more on the science of mapping for development. The Himalaya Hindu Kush mountain range and the Tibetan plateau are widely known as the Third Pole. Its ice fields contain the world's largest reserve of fresh water outside the polar regions. But the Third Pole is not only a precious natural resource, it's also the source of unique climatic and environmental data that today are available on the internet for free. Lou Del Bello is back with us to tell us more. Hi there, Lou. Hi, John. So what exactly is this project about and why is it important? This project is important because it helps understand the natural system of one of the highest regions on Earth and the source of the 10 major river systems that provide irrigation, power and drinking water for over 1.3 billion people, nearly the 20% of the world population. But the area is endangered by climate change and knowing more about its geography and climatic patterns is important to make prediction on the impacts of extreme weather events. Willie Schubert is a Washington-based geojournalism expert at the Earth Journalism Network. I asked him how climate instability affects the life of people in Nepal. You know, one example from the story, so we're, we're doing this in, in collaboration with a network of journalists called The Third Pole. And they're a group of environmental journalists based throughout the region who are trying to write about Asia's water crisis. And in one of their stories, there's a wealth of examples, but in one of the stories, um, it includes an anecdote about a farmer in Nepal and how the unpredictable monsoon uh, led them to an increased reliance upon irrigation water, which slowed down their ability to harvest. And this is you know, incredibly important as an individual story because you know, Nepal is a nation where agricultural production is not on pace with population growth, so there's a tremendous pressure. And this isn't something that's, that's new. It's becoming more and more typical as shifting temperatures and seasons mean that water doesn't often arrive when it used to or in the expected quantities. So scientists are investigating these changes. The problem here is the science is there. It's just very difficult to understand for analysts and policymakers. So the third pole platform simplifies complex science and data sets through maps, animations and visualization. But collecting a huge amount of data from different sources in the area comes with a set of challenges. And that's also part of the reason why the platform is the first of its kind. Well, actually, the region is an interesting case because access to data in, is segmented and often constrained by licensing schemes. Um, so 
you have a, many different countries who have each their own um, their own infrastructure for managing data for managing data for responding to uh, climate risks for uh, allocating water resources. Um, but what you also have is a situation where these rivers are crossing national borders. And, you know, the headwaters is in one country, the delta is in another, it passes through multiple countries. So it's really a, an issue of, of collective management and a collective response. So since these, these threats to water are common, that's what the climate change issue represents, is it's a common uh, threat to the current status quo. Okay, Lou, so who will be the users of this new evidence pool? Will it be the general public or just uh, other scientists? Well, according to Willy, the platform will be a useful tool for everyone, but in particular for journalists. Here's why. Well, I think that it's certainly interesting in and of itself. If you go through and you, you look at each of the data sets, uh, on every page they display automatically, so you can see an interactive map of say, where are all the dams in the Ganges, or where is the flood-prone areas in Bangladesh, or what's the status of all the glaciers, of all the basins, you can click on that and just see um, very quickly what is the status. Now, that's important for people who are analyzing or interpreting this kind of information, but with this catalog, it's a first step, because in order to make this into having some real knowledge value, you need that interpretation, you need that design, you need that, that expertise as, as media to simplify these issues, to combine them in interesting ways to tell stories. So the next step for us after the catalog of building a database that is a common resource amongst many different partners is the interpretation, is providing that next level of um, understanding by combining these data sets in interesting ways to tell stories in a way that is both has both evidence and the human context what's at stake here because that's really what's important and what's really necessary for regional cooperation on tackling these critical issues especially as our climate changes well, that was Willie Schubert of the Earth Journalism Network speaking to Lou Del Bello about the new platform, Third Pole. Now, Lou, speaking of climate change, I know that the coming month will be a crucial one for uh, the global debate. Definitely. It's going to be very important. The 1st of December, we see the start of the UN 20th Conference of Parties on Climate Change. And we'll be reporting for Lima in Peru. Tell us more about the history of the conference, Lou. Well, the international political response to climate change began in 1992 with the adoption of the United Nations Framework for Climate Change, or UNFCCC. And they created a framework for action aimed at stabilizing the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Tell us about last year's conference and what we can expect in the coming year. So last year, the conference was held in Poland, in Warsaw. And it drew over 8,300 participants, including 4,000 government officials. And the focus was on the loss and damage mechanism. So it's a way of paying back people who have been affected by natural disasters. That's because last year we had a typhoon Ayan hitting the Philippines. Uh, what we can expect this year, this year's COP is considered more of a preparation one. 
In fact, in 2015, the countries part of the UN Convention on Climate Change will have to reach a legally binding agreement for the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. That's in accordance with the Kyoto Protocol. Many are hoping that during this year's conference, the parties will agree on a draft of the document to be signed in 2015. Well, Lou, thanks very much for that. And we're looking forward to knowing more about COP20 this month. Well, that's all for now from me, John Eskam, and the SciDev.net team. Until next time, it's goodbye.